Hey, brewery lovers. Welcome back to another episode of the DC Beer Show. I'm, yay! Richard and Mike here with you today. Uh, we've got a great interview following our news and events update. At the beginning of the show, uh, we're going to be talking to, actually Adam and I are going to be talking to Bob Peace, the CEO and president of the Brewers Association. He was in town last week, of course, for Saver Week. Uh, <laughs> um, if you didn't get out to any of the Saver events, uh, that's a shame. There was a lot going on. But uh, we've got other stuff coming up. We're moving right on into sort of the spring and summer, uh, like, event season, a lot of outdoorsy stuff. So we'll talk about that. But first, Michael Stein is going to give you the news. Yes, Richard. Good morning. I feel like we need a news. Like, Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good beer. Richard and I are enjoying some pale lagers right now, one locally made in D.C., one from out of town in New Jersey, and that's because Saver was on Friday. Mm -hmm. So speaking of Saver, I just wanted to say I felt a bit like Janet Jackson on Friday. I was falling in love with you again. Wow. Saver had that old time <laughs> feeling. You know, I got to bring the tunes to the show. You do. <laughs> uh, my favorite Jackson, Janet Jackson, I was falling in love again at Saver. And the whole reason I was doing that was because there just was a con- convival, you know, great congeniality amongst Saver goers. Convivial. Convivial. Thank you. Convivial mm-hmm. sense amongst goers. So I talked to a few brewers about what to call Dogfish Head and Boston Beer after their merger. It was very interesting. As soon as I walked in, right at 7 o'clock, well, Stein time, so 7.15, there was a line behind the Dogfish Head booth, and Sam Caligioni was there pouring beer. And people were joking in line, you know, oh, it's going to be called uh, Samuel Doghead or Samfish Adams. <laughs> uh, but in all seriousness, there really was a great sense of camaraderie there. There was also a sense of disbelief among a lot of brewers, cellar workers, uh, those in production, that some craft beer lovers were upset over the merger. And if you're upset that Boston Beer and Dogfish Head have merged, send us a tweet at DC Beer and let's chop it up. Let's get into it. In the meantime, I'll say that as someone who has long been interested in the pay gap and getting uh, equity in the pay gap, both Sam and Mariah Caligioni are going to be making $427,450 annually. And they deserve it. In the it. first year. Yes, they do. So that's nice to see. Yeah, absolutely. It won't be nice, however, if there are layoffs or forced relocations, but all of that is chitter-chatter and naysaying and just complete nonsense until we see more details about that deal and what's going down there. So we're keeping an eye on that. Prior to Saver, earlier on on Friday, uh, Brewbound hosted their brew talks at Penn Social. And some of the proceeds from that event went to benefit the D.C. Brewers Guild. I was told that the benefit uh, benefiting the Brewers Guild actually came – out of the work that Sam Caligioni uh, had been doing with the local guild in support of local guilds, really making the craft brewers of America work locally, you know, thinking internationally but working locally. And that's really nice to see that that Brewbound gave a proceeds of their profit to our brewers guild here in the district. Topics of conversation ranged, and there were a few panels. On the second panel, there was some very interesting talk of tax and trade particularly discussed was the cost of excise tax on a barrel of beer. As you might know, a barrel of beer is 31 gallons. So for the vast majority of craft brewers, 
the tax that they pay for those 31 gallons is $3.50. And that's thanks to um, the Craft Beverage Modernization Act, CBMA, CBM. And let's be TA clear, you're talking, we're talking about federal taxes. Correct. Federal excise taxes. Absolutely. Okay. Federal excise taxes. Thank you, Richard. But if that's not renewed, the tax on a barrel of beer could go up to $7, which, you know, $3.50 to $7 does not sound like a lot. Yes, it does. Well, it's doubling. It does sound like a lot because it's doubling, but you are a wonk. So you know all, <laughs> you are a policy wonk. You know all about that. But just to put in perspective, let's say you're a bigger brewery, a regional brewery, and you make 20,000 barrels a year. You'd go from paying $70,000 to $140,000 in federal excise tax. And if you think about that, 20,000 barrels of beer, you know, it's a good sized regional brewery, not a huge brewery by any means. Um, but that's a lot of cash that could go much further if it wasn't going to Uncle Sam. Well, that's that's easily, easily all of the cost of a salary and benefits for yep. a full-time staff person, yep. right? I mean, yep. so easily. Yep. Um, yeah. Maybe two. Maybe even two. Maybe even in, two in, on, the production on, the, side. on the low end mm-hmm. of the production side or yep. the junior end, I mean, junior. Of, yeah. uh, of the production side. Yeah. Yep. So that's, that's money that could be going to hire staff. That's money that could be going to um, – do marketing to, exactly. to grow your business. Exactly. That, that, yeah. yeah. So there's no question that economically it's good. Some brewers back in 2017, early 2018, when this uh, came down the pike, said, we don't mind paying $7 if it means Medicare for all or some things like that. They were yeah. trying to equate it to those issues, which that's really not the issue here. It's it's really about tax. Um, and so at, at the Brew Talks, Brewers Association senior VP, Paul Gatza, said of the hill climb with his members, because all the members were in town for Saver, you know, seeing their representatives, quote, the message of uncertainty when you don't know what's going to happen, say with tariffs or the excise tax, you're less likely to invest in something, end quote. And while it seems like that lack of investment might be unseen with many new breweries in the DMV throughout Metro DC, there are many breweries in our area who are trying to do more with less as the industry faces these uncertainties. So no bloodshed or bloodletting yet, but people are belt tightening. Also on the panel at, at Brew Talks was the Beer Institute CEO, Jim McGreevy. Brewbound pointed out that his organization, the Beer Institute, released a report saying the beverage industry was paying $250 million for aluminum can sheet, but the Treasury Department pocketed $50 million. So producers are paying 100% of the tariff on canned sheet as if it was all imported, but 70% is actually recycled from scrap metal. So those numbers reflect from the end of March to the end of December for the entire beverage industry. McGreevy said, quote, there is nothing good about the aluminum tariffs and the steel tariffs, end quote. And then he went on to say, quote, we estimated it was a $350 million tax, annual tax, on the brewing industry in the United States, end quote. The most recent development on the trade front is a lifting of the tariffs on industrial metals from Mexico and Canada. That just got done Friday on Saver Day. According to the Washington Post, quote, the United States agreed Friday to lift its tariffs on industrial metals from Mexico and Canada, clearing a major obstacle to congressional passage of President Trump's new North American trade deal, end quote. On the Chinese front of the trade war, there's been an increase on the import of Chinese goods from 10 percent to 25 percent on $300 billion worth of goods. Those goods include, you guessed it, 
brewing equipment. So that's very interesting to our interests and all those making beer in D.C., especially those ordering tanks from China and other brewing equipment. So we'll see what's happening this week and next week uh, if the trade war is escalating or de-escalating, you know, showing what we saw Friday, uh, or if you know, finally America will make good on having a national brewery as was proposed in colonial times in the 18th century. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we'll be talking later in the, this episode with Bob Peace and, and he's going to talk a little bit about the excise tax. He's going to talk a little bit about the tariffs and some of these issues. So stick through the episode to, to hear that uh, excellent, excellent conversation Adam and I have with Bob. Let's move on to What's going on in the D.C. craft beer scene, the metro area's craft beer scene? So many events. uh, We're just giving you a few highlights. So let's get started with today, Wednesday, May 22nd. uh, B-Side in Fairfax, Virginia is doing some cool stuff all week long, really. B-Side is a finalist, I should say, is a finalist in the Rammies for Best Beer Program. Woohoo! Congratulations. Um, for those of you who don't know, the Rammies are essentially the Restaurant Association's Metropolitan Ra- Washing, RAMWA, RAM W's <laughs> uh, awards, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a, it's, uh, now one of the interesting things you may not know is that I believe there's, a, is it a two year? It's a five year. It's a five year. Yeah. So yep. there's a, if you, if you receive a Rammy, you cannot be nominated in the same category for five years. Correct. Um, so we see a lot of interesting turnover yep. in, in who's, who's getting nominated. But, it, Check out dcbeer.com for more coverage of that. Yes. Uh, now, B-Side in Fairfax uh, is a finalist for the Restaurant Association's Beer Program of the Year Award in the metropolitan area. So they're going to be bringing in a lot of stuff. Tonight, May 22nd, uh, they're having beer for wine lovers. Mm. Uh, you can bring in your favorite wine drinker, and B-Side's going to try to find a beer they like, and they're going to pair that with a charcuterie from Red Apron Butcher. So if you know somebody who's like, eh, I'm a wine person. I don't like beer. Tonight would be a great time to take them down to Fairfax, take them to B-Side yes. and, let, and, and challenge B-Side, the folks at B-Side, to find a beer that they'll like and, and pair, that pairs well with a charcuterie. Yes. There are great events happening at B-Side related to uh, the Rammies all week long. Check out the calendar at dcbeer.com to find out more. Now, it's Memorial Day. There's a lot of stuff happening over the weekend related to Memorial Day. Uh, We're going to start with Blue Jacket beginning at noon on Saturday and again on Sunday and again on Monday at noon. Blue Jacket's going to be pouring Metal Guru. This is the Maybach lager that they produce every year. It's matured for four months, mm-hmm. four months, uh, and then served, uh, and then and then and then poured from a rubber-clad Franconian-style gravity keg. Yes, this is Franconian German beer culture come to Southeast DC. Yeah, and uh, uh, it's once a year that you can get this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a, it's a strong pale lager. It's hundred percent unfiltered, and it's naturally carbonated. Right, so uh, this is something like I said. You're only going to get this once a year. So they're they're tapping a new one. They're going to tap a fresh gravity keg every day at noon. So if you can be down there at noon, you can get a half liter pour for seven bucks. As they say in München, "Ozapt ist." It is tapped. All right. Uh, there are also Memorial Day parties happening at Port City in Alexandria on Saturday, uh, May 25th. Dirt Farm Brewing in Bluemont, Virginia is having Memorial Day activities, Memorial Day weekend stuff uh, every day. And on Monday, City Tap in Penn Quarter is having 
a uh, special party for Memorial Day. So if you're in D.C., you can head over to that. As always, on Tuesdays, it's Brews Day at Kramer's Bar and Cafe in DuPont Circle, sponsored by D.C. Beer. You can get half-priced pints of nearly 20 beers. You can get limited and specialty-run brews as part of this deal. Uh, they're food specials, so it's great beer at a great price every Tuesday at 7 o'clock at Kramer Books Bar and Cafe in DuPont. Get all the details about these and dozens of other craft beer events at dcbeer.com. And if you want to have an event featured on the DC Beer Show or dcbeer.com or in our newsletter, send an email to info at dcbeer.com. We'd love to hear from you. By the way, listeners, if you have not yet subscribed to the Weekly Pour, the dcbeer.com newsletter, head on over to dcbeer.com right now. Uh, and right up there at the top, there's a place you can click to add your email address to get the newsletter where we sort of give you the, every week the update about what new content we've published, uh, what events we're featuring that week. Uh, it's a really great way to keep up with what's going on uh, and have it delivered directly to your inbox every day. All right. That's the events for the week, the featured stuff that's happening. Let's move on to the interview. Here we go. Hey, brewery lovers. This is Richard. I'm here with my good friend, Adam. Hey, everybody. Uh, we are so honored to be in the presence today on the DC Beer Show with Bob Pease, who is the CEO and president of the Brewers Association. Bob, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, you guys. Great to be here with you. So you've been now with the Brewers Association for more than a quarter of a century. Ooh, man, you're making me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but for, so for 25 years, you started as a customer service manager. Man, you've been doing your research, Back you in the yeah. day, yeah. Yes. Um, 1993. Yeah, so wow. that's, that's really impressive uh, to, have, to have been with the organization for as long as you have. And you became CEO in 2014, right? Correct, yes. Excellent. Well, so that's, uh, that's five years now that you've been running the show at the Brewers Association. So I want to I want to dive right into one topic. Um, so last week was Savor. That's why you're in town for Savor, uh, the Brewers Association sort of annual event, usually held in D.C. I think every year, but one year held here in D.C. And you also bring the bring your brewers up to Capitol Hill, correct? Yeah, I mean Savor. I think we were talking earlier. I think this is our twelfth version of our twelfth edition of Savor, and you know the the genesis behind Savor was for us to do an East Coast event that somewhat complemented the Great American Beer Festival, which is an event that we do every year in Denver, uh, but something, an event that was smaller, than, but then also helped uh, build at that time on our fledgling government affairs efforts around advocacy for small and independent brewers. So that's kind of how the event got started. And yes, we bring in brewery owners and state guild leaders uh, in conjunction with SAVER, and we schedule meetings with them, with their senators and representatives, and use the opportunity of everybody coming to D.C. to have a big-time presence up on Capitol Hill. And it's been proven to be tremendously successful for us. Well, that's, I want to talk a little bit more about that. My background is actually in public affairs and politics. Great. Uh, so I've done a lot of work bringing uh, advocates to town and, and having them meet. But before we get into that, um, I want to talk a little bit about the rumors that spread last week, and DCBeer.com was responsible for this to a certain extent. Uh, but but we published a story that said it, that that we, we were hearing was that 
2019 will be the last year that there is a saver. And since we've got you here, I was wondering if you could sort of set the record straight on on whether or not what you know and sort of what the facts are about saver and the future of saver here in D.C. Sure. Happy to. Um, While I can say that absolutely with 100 percent certainty, nothing has been decided uh, because at the end of the day, that's probably going to be my decision. And to my knowledge, I haven't made any decisions yet. Uh, So... um, you know, Saber is in its is in its twelfth year. Um, for most events, that's a pretty good run. Um, yeah. The Great American Beer Festival, the, the other big consumer event that we do, is a bit of an anomaly. That it's I think we're in the thirty fifth or thirty sixth year for the Great American Beer Festival. Hardly any events have a longevity such as that. But getting back to the specifics of Saver, you know how we plan and budget each year at the association is that's done at the staff level and so me myself and my management team who's you know 11 other super talented super dedicated professionals lock ourselves in a conference room for four days and we put together a operating plan and then a corresponding budget that looks at every significant project that we do at the association and then we will take that then to the board in September and say, here's our preliminary uh, direction that we're headed for 2020. What do you think? Mm-hmm. And then they'll give us feedback and on the really on the strategic level. And then they'll come back to me and say, this is, these are our strategic objectives. And Bob, now come back to us with some tactics that help us f- fulfill that strategic, those strategic objectives. Uh, Certainly one of our strategic objectives is going to be continue to build on our, you know, really, I think, impressive uh, traction and presence up on Capitol Hill. Uh, if that involves SAVER and for 2020, can't really say. Uh, we look at it each year. You know, we took it to New York one year. So, you know, what I can say about SAVER is uh, I love it. I think it's one of the best things that we do. And I don't think there's another beer and food event like it in the world. Uh, for us, it's a really small event, you know, but there's actually you know, close to 2,000 people in there on, mm-hmm. on one night. So uh, um, we, we're just uh, super proud of what we've done with Saver and how that's helped grow the beer scene here in D.C. Well, we're very thankful, I can tell you. Uh, as, as craft beer lovers in D.C., we're thankful for those 12 years of, of having that opportunity. And, and I do think, and, and everyone I've spoken to, Bill DeBon, our, our, our editor emeritus at D.C. Beer, and, and Jake Berg and Mike Stein, and all the folks who've been involved in D.C. Beer over the years uh, – have always like Saver's been just a huge thing, and when I've talked to others and Greg Anger and other folks who are sort of leaders of the craft beer community, there's there's a huge respect for what you guys have done by bringing Saver here, wow. and the fact that it really has helped to grow a, a very robust craft beer community and environment in D.C. and in the greater metro area. But I do want to talk a little bit about the legislative side of this, sure. um, and and I want to get a sense of what the Brewers Associations legislative priorities are for for 2019 and and this year and and looking a little bit forward uh, perhaps into next year uh, and beyond from a federal level we're in Washington DC you are I'm sure meeting with members of Congress uh, what what is the Brewers Association hoping to accomplish from a legislative and policy perspective uh, in the coming year or two sure um, well our number one objective on the federal landscape is the extension or perhaps more uh, 
positively would be the permanency of the Craft Beverage Modernization and Tax Reform Act. That's legislation that was passed at the end of 2017 that lowered the federal excise tax rates for 99% of small and independent brewers around the country. Uh, it's an effort that we've been working on at the association for over 10 years. And so we were very fortunate to have that passed at the end of 2017, but it was only passed for a two-year time horizon. So what that means in non-DC speak is that those rates are going to expire at the end of 2019 and they will revert to the old rates, which means that most small, every small and independent brewery will see their federal excise tax rates double. Wow. go back up to the old rate. So that is the number one um, legislative priority. We've got uh, a lot of great progress uh, has been made. You know, when you have a piece of legislation, which we do, uh, it's been reintroduced into this Congress, the number one tactical objective is to generate as many co-sponsors as possible on the bill. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, today, we went over 50% uh, of the U.S. Senate co-sponsoring the bill. Oh, excellent. So we're at, now we're at uh, 51 co-sponsors and including 52 with uh, Senator Wyden, who's the sponsor of the bill. Uh, those senators are bipartisan as it gets. Uh, I don't think there's literally another bill in this Congress that has that level of support from R's and D's. The House Companion Bill has 156 co-sponsors and, again, a really significant number and just super bipartisan. So we're optimistic that you know we can get this done, but tax legislation is hard to pass. Right. And uh, you know we're somewhat at the mercy of how uh, the House and the Senate find ways to work together, uh, but we will be up there uh, making our case uh, on Thursday. Excellent. Excellent. Just real quick, since we are in the greater D.C. metro area, are there any – and I'm going to get a little bit political here and you guys are just going to have to suck <laughs> it up and take it. Are there any members of the House or Senate from Maryland or Virginia uh, who could use a little bit of, of grassroots advocacy to help push them in the direction uh, that we could get our listeners uh, and the folks who follow D.C. beer uh, to, to send an email, make a phone call, get in touch with your – Elected official. Uh, Senator Cardin has, of Maryland has been one of our great uh, supporters over the years, and we owe a lot to, uh, to his support. And uh, I want to give a shout-out to his main staffer in that office, a gentleman named Gray Maxwell, uh, avid home brewer, uh, super knowledgeable about all the issues facing beer. So I would uh, give a, a shout-out to that office. We haven't had as much success making inroads with Senator Van Hollen. Uh, you know, he's relatively new to the Senate, came over from the House. Uh, we would love to see uh, him co-sponsor the bill. He's not a current co-sponsor. Uh, we've got some really impressive brewery owners and great stories to tell from Maryland. Mm -hmm. uh, Julie Verratti, who owns uh, Denison's Brewery in yep. Silver Spring. She's chair of our diversity committee at the association. They're doing some fantastic work and leadership on diversity and inclusion. Uh, and then Kevin Blodger uh, from uh, Union Craft in Baltimore. Tremendous story. If you have seen, are familiar with the uh, Union Craft Collective down in Baltimore and right. that, that warehouse and what they're doing there in terms of creating a, you know, a manufacturing and artisan real community space, it's a tremendous story. So uh, I would say that uh, our, our folks from Virginia, um, Senator Kane has been very supportive over the years. So, but uh, yeah, neither one of those states. Our goal for every state is to have a hundred percent of the delegation sure. sponsoring the bill, and there's room for improvement in both those states. Well, I am perfectly happy to advocate <laughs> uh, for, and all of our listeners should be. If you're in Maryland, like give give Senator Van Hollen and 
a shout out. He used to be uh, Adam and my uh, representative in the House. Uh, so, well, I don't know him personally. He certainly heard from me on issues in the past. And I'll definitely reach out to his Senate office and tell him this is something that he should he So should will I. I'll also reach out to Cardin's office and just thank him. Yeah, that's true. Thank his yep. support as well. I think yeah. that's just as important. And you folks in Virginia do the same with your senators and your uh, members of Congress. Call them up and ask them if they support this bill. Give us the bill number again in the Senate. House. In the House, it's H.R. 1175. And in the Senate, it's S362. And it's the Craft Beverage Modernization and Tax Reform Act. OK, we'll put some information about that into the show notes. Um, but yeah, we we this is something everybody should make sure that our elected officials on Capitol Hill are behind uh, for the sake of great craft beer. We'd, we'd appreciate it. All right. Let's take it a little bit away from politics and talk about beer. I'm going to turn the floor over to Adam. Well, I guess one question I would have, I know the American Homebrewers Association is a division. Is that what the right Very term? good. You division should come, you should come work for us. Not Most of our staff doesn't get that right. <laughs> He's a lawyer, you know. <laughs> I am a lawyer and I'm a homebrewer as well. Are you a member? Yeah, oh, yes. Oh, well, thank, you, thank, you for, thank you for your membership. You're very welcome. It's a great organization. If anyone's not a member and you homebrew, I would suggest it. It's great. You get discounts yeah. at a lot of places. Uh, the magazine they put out is great, too. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> but what I was going to ask, um, I guess um, it, it's kind of po- political, sorry. But is there anything you guys are looking at as the Brewers Association in terms of advocating for homebrewers? Um, I pretty sure every state now has legalized some Very kind good, of Very good, Adam. Brewing. Yes. Yeah, we, um, were, we were instrumental in helping work with uh, state homebrewing associations to flip those last three or four states, mm-hmm. Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, where homebrewing was not legal. Um, on the federal level, which is really more where I'm engaged on for, for homebrewing, is just making sure that, you know, Members and prospective members know that we're the organization that's out there uh, advocating for uh, homebrewing rights. Uh, and then on the state level, the, my colleague and he's the American Homebrewers Association director, Gary Glass, he works more closely on advocating and working with uh, state legislatures on issues facing homebrewers. And that could be anything from being allowed to have a homebrew club meeting at a brewery that has a liquor license to having a competition uh, where beer has to move from one place to another. And I know now we're working specifically in Ohio to uh, change some legislation that would allow us to bring HomebrewCon, the annual homebrew, a- annual conference for homebrewers, to to Ohio. So those are just some of the examples that we do uh, in the HA and the government affairs space. But yes, we're active on that level as well. Okay. I have to say, I went to HomebrewCon when it was in Baltimore. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> we did have a blast at that. Yeah. The, the educational programming there is great. Uh, and quick s- jump back to politics. Uh, Senator Cardin came to the banquet that night and stayed for the whole time. He and his oh, wife wow. attended the, and had the had the dinner. It was, it was a really cool night. This year, Homebrew Con is uh, June 27th to 29th in Providence, Rhode Island. So, That's drivable, not far. drivable distance nope. for uh, many of your, many of your listeners. Yeah, I'm from Massachusetts. So I've been really thinking about going again. Yeah, Just drive up there and go. Now, something I think that affects everyone who loves beer. Have 
the aluminum and steel tariffs been affecting brewers as of yet? Great question. Uh, and then the tariffs again were in the news this week with the imposition of the higher rates on uh, products coming uh, uh, into this country from China and China retaliating and uh, putting slapping uh, high rates on uh, exports into China, which will affect some of our members because we do have some members exporting craft beer into China. But yes, on a bigger ish, bigger level have been the tariffs on steel and aluminum. The Brewers Association is opposed to those tariffs. Um, we understand the need for fair trade, um, but in this case, uh, you know, both uh, those, the aluminum and the steel tariffs were implemented on a, uh, you know, with the uh, Department of Commerce doing a Section 232 investigation, which, you know, says there's national security implications with dumping of uh, those, two, those two commodities into the, into the U.S. market. That very well may be, and if that's the case, we would be opposed to that tactic. But there's a difference between the aluminum that is used to make beer cans than the aluminum used to make a fighter jet. And so we have tried to get that message across um, to the administration. We have worked uh, collaboratively with the trade association that represents the large brewers, the Beer Institute. They have done great work helping us, uh, helping the industry lead in, that, in this particular issue. But so far, uh, those uh, those tariffs remain in place, and so that has resulted in a couple of negative things for craft brewers. A one higher prices, which does eventually filter down to higher prices for the beer drinker. Somewhere between six and fifteen percent is what we're seeing anecdotally from our, our members. But even more, I think, impactful has been the uh, the the tariffs have resulted in the suppliers uh, raising their minimum orders for small brewers, which is very problematic because you have to order more cans than you need for three or six months. And for many small brewers, they, don't, they don't have a, literally do not have a place to put all the cans. Mm -hmm. And so minimum orders has, uh, have raised, which has been very you know, impactful to small brewers. And then uh, lead time has been also been a big issue is that it's gone from maybe three months before the tariff imposition to now six months or longer to get a uh, to get a, uh, a, uh, a can order fulfilled. I was with a small brewer last week in Seattle. They told me they used 50,000 cans or I'm sorry, 18 million. They were 50,000 barrel brewery. They used 18 million cans in 2018 and you know the commerce secretary was quoted at one point as saying hey it's not that big of a deal it's like a penny a can well a penny times 18 million yeah i think that's i think that that's a pretty impactful number for a small brewery right so yes definite issue uh, we're opposed we're doing everything we can to advocate with the administration to illustrate to them why this is uh, you know hurting small business i wonder if there's going to be a move back toward bottles uh, as a result, not that that's a th – th yeah. there, there are pros and cons yeah. to bottles and versus cans. I'm a big fan of cans personally. I think it's uh, better for the beer. Um, but if if that cost of cans rises and and the interesting thing that you mentioned that I hadn't – that I didn't know about was the, the way it's changing the minimum orders and the lead time for orders, which yeah. is it's, – it's a little bit easier to eat a penny a can – when you're just gonna, when you can pass that on to a consumer, it's a little bit harder when you have to pay that penny a can for six months worth of cans, and, you're, and, you're <laughs> and not, then you got to find a place and, to and put them. And they're just sitting in your warehouse if, yeah, you, have the, if yeah. you have the warehouse space. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Uh, that that's something I did not know. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Um, now I'm assuming that 
basically the brewers really have no choice. I mean, it's not like they can get another supply. No, there's, and that's another, that's an excellent question. Mm -hmm. There are very uh, few suppliers uh, for small brewers to purchase cans from. Really, there's only two. Um, And if that's, there are other brokers that you can, you know, act as like a a third party, but that just adds to the cost. If you want to buy, purchase direct from a can supplier, there's only two options right now for small brewers. Wow. Oh, that seems like a bad market decision for somebody. <laughs> <laughs> well, hope, you know, perhaps the market auto corrects and some, sure. another supplier emerges. But there were, you know, uh, 10 years ago, seven years ago, there were more and there's been consolidation. Mm. Great. Now, another area that I, at least I'm interested in, hopefully other people are, is the franchise laws. And I believe the Brewers Association has been doing some work. Well, I have to, I have to tread very carefully here. Uh, <laughs> Um, yes, franchise laws, you know, exist in many states, but not most states, uh, and those are laws that can tie a beer supplier, a craft brewery, one of my members, to a distributor or a wholesaler um, for, in some, in the most draconian cases, for life. Um, we obviously don't support that. We think that um, we think that uh, contracts should supersede a business relationship between a supplier, aka a brewery, and a distributor, aka a wholesaler. Now, franchise laws were created and put in place when the beer landscape in this country looked very, very different, and, and those were back in the early seventies, early eight, late seventies, early eighties, when beer distributors often only had one, two, three, or maybe four suppliers. And at that time, if a supplier decided to just capriciously terminate the agreement, that could that decision could put a distributor out of business. A brewer, you mean? No. No, no a the, distributor. The, 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 brew, the brewer, if, you know, Richard only has five beer suppliers that he's distributing, and if your oh. biggest supplier just comes to you one day and says, hey, I don't want, to, I don't want you to s- distribute my beer anymore, you had no recourse, and you'd, be, and yeah, you'd, yeah, be, yeah. And you'd I, be put out of business. I understand. Right. So right. they were able. The distributors were able to get laws introduced at, in state legislatures around the country. Not every state, but many states, that offered them protection, very similar to what car dealerships have. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, now you fast forward thirty-five years, the beer landscape is changed dramatically, and now the relationship has been inversely switched, where. Beer distributors are typically much larger than uh, the average supplier in their ha- in their in their house, and they don't need legislative protection from a small and independent brewery. We can see we can understand why the distributors would want that protection from their largest suppliers, but the difference in size is so dramatic that the thought that distributors should need legislative protection from uh, the average craft brewer is something we don't see eye to eye with. So we talk about these things with the Beer Distributors Trade Association. And, you know, in in many states, there have been carve-outs for small brewers to self-distribute. There have been some carve-outs where franchise laws have been modified to allow uh, uh, contracts to supersede state franchise laws. So there is constant dialogue ongoing between the Brewers Association and the Distributors Trade Association, and then there's lots of dialogue going on at the state level as well. So as you know, the beer industry continues to evolve, we'd like to see the laws evolve along with them. Great. Yeah, I, 
in preparation for this, I actually read the Maryland franchise law. You're a law geek, aren't and, you? <laughs> oh, my God. The Declaration of Policy? What'd you think? Wow. Maryland's are some of the most onerous in the country. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. not every, again, not every state has those. So in many cases, mm-hmm. uh, um, Colorado, where I'm from, very, no, very little. Massachusetts, uh, California, New York, no franchise laws. And w- we think the absence of franchise laws has really been one of the – in those states has really helped, you know, been part of the – renaissance or the spark to help this renaissance of craft brewing because, you know, breweries like New Belgium or Boston Beer, Sam Adams, back in, when they started in the, in the 80s, no distributor would take them. They, would, they wouldn't distribute their beer. Sure. So they self-distributed. They got uh, traction in the marketplace. And then now most of the – both of those breweries distribute, I would venture to say, 95 percent of their beer through, through distributors, through, this, through the middle tier. So that would be one of our arguments if we were sitting down here with the beer distributors. We would say, OK, we understand the need for franchise laws to protect your members and to add value to their businesses. But we need a, a reasonable uh, threshold or a carve-out where a brewery can self-distribute. Because what happens is if a brewery self-distributes, they get traction in the marketplace, they start to have sales and they grow, they quickly realize, you know, we'd rather focus on brewing and not focus on distribution. Mm -hmm. And at that point, then they sign and work with a distributor. And that's a good first step. But we don't think that when you sign with a distributor, you should be married to them for life. We think contract should contract law and contract contractual agreements should supersede uh, legislative protection. Yeah, it's interesting. We've been hearing, we've heard a lot from brewers um, as we've talked about in this area: the the increase in breweries, the rapid expansion of the number of breweries. Um, and we've talked to a lot of brewers about: Are we reaching capacity? Or are there too many breweries? And we've had a number of brewers tell us that if you're interested in the craft beer business, consider starting an independent distributor. Yeah, that's you a, know that's, um, that's rather that's than great. a brewery. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, because the other you know dynamic happening in the beer world is a the you know explosion of the number of small and independent breweries, but at the same time, there's been a consolidation on the distribution tier. Mm -hmm. So there are fewer options for breweries that want to go the distribution model route to choose from. Yeah, and what we've also heard is in a lot of cases, because there are so few distributors, you know, they have so many beers that they have to It's hard to get attention. It's hard to get attention. Your beer can end up sitting there for a long time. Yes. And, you know, that is not all the distributor's responsibility. There is a responsibility on the brewery to support uh, support their brand. And, you know, there's always two sides to every story. And for a brewery to sign with a distributor and think, well, the distributor is going to do everything for them, that's a misnomer. That's not going to happen. You've got to support your brand uh, more so than your distributor partner. And in most cases, the relationship between brewers and distributors works pretty well. Uh, and, you know, one of the reasons that that does play out like that is because most beer suppliers, when they've partnered with a distributor, they don't want to leave. They don't want to have to start over. They want to make it work with the, right. with the p- distributor right. partner they've chosen. Moving to uh, another area that you mentioned before, um, diversity. What are you – I mean, you talked about – I think Julie Verratti being, yep, uh, yes, the chair of chair of our yeah. diversity committee. 
Yeah, what are you all doing in terms of fostering diversity in the brewing? Um, well, we think we are, we know we are trying to lead in this area, and I think we are being somewhat successful. Um, this is not going to be an effort that will have an end date. This is something I think I see with us for the duration of the Brewers Association. Uh, you know, what we are trying to do is to reach out to a more diverse community of humans to own breweries, work in breweries, and to hopefully drink beer from small and independent breweries. So, I mean, we have a selfish motive, if you will, on one hand, in that we want more people attending and going to small and independent breweries and buying beer from those businesses that don't look like white guys with beards. We want to have a more diverse customer base. So what we are doing is we have formed a diversity committee, which is made up of a diverse group of brewery owners that are members of the Brewers Association. We have hired, which is what we want to do, what we call a diversity ambassador. Her name is uh, Dr. J. Nicole Beckham, and she's a professor at Randolph College in Virginia. And what Dr. J does for us is she travels around the country to uh, speak to gatherings of breweries at the state level and talk about how they can make their business more attractive to people that don't look like them then, and how to perhaps recruit uh, a more diverse workforce. And uh, so she's been doing some excellent work. She's also authored uh, five best practices for what our members can, you know, actually take these and try to put them in place uh, at their businesses. And then most recently what we've done is we have um, awarded uh, six different grants to events around the country that are beer-focused events that uh, work towards attracting a more uh, diverse uh, client, client base. So one of the uh, events that we've uh, supported with a grant would be uh, an event in Pittsburgh called Fresh Fest mm-hmm. that uh, bills itself as the uh, you know first uh, beer festival in the United States that attracts and markets itself to African-American-owned breweries. And so we are trying to help that event uh, you know uh, by a very small grant, help them get off the ground and keep that event uh, get keep that event flourishing and growing. And so I see uh, us continuing uh, our efforts in the diversity area, and I suspect our efforts in how much we fund different uh, minority-oriented uh, events will only continue to grow. Well, I'm going to take this conversation in a bit of a controversial direction now. <laughs> <laughs> these, these haven't been controversial? <laughs> uh, I know that there's been a lot of discussion within the Brewers Association, and there have been some changes recently. Uh, In terms of what the definition of a craft brewer is. Yes. uh, And and there has been there's been a lot of discussion and debate. What what exactly is craft brewery and and who exactly should does and should the Brewers Association represent in terms of craft brewing and and one of the most recent changes that I've heard about and and I hope you can elucidate what what the conversation was and, and what happened is when does the Brewers Association go beyond sort of the the sort of core definition of beer, the four ingredients, et cetera, that I think most of our listeners understand and start to expand and include um, 
the manufacturers of alcoholic beverages yeah. <laughs> that may go beyond that sort of core four ingredient beer recipe kind of thing. And and so specifically for those listeners who don't know, just to explain, um, we're talking about malt beverages. We're talking about uh, cider. We're talking about um, spiked uh, seltzers, seltzers and things kombucha. like kombucha and those these the, yeah the, there's yeah. there's a variety mm-hmm. of sort of fermented and alcoholic Endless beverages <laughs> yeah. really and yeah. and the, probably some somebody soon will come up with something that we don't even know about well, spiked that, tea and that, things that, like that 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 is for sure going to happen <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> we know what we don't know yeah and exactly and yeah. and and so how is the, how does the brewers association address these sure things? great question um you know these are decisions that are made at the board of director level um for a number of years the and so let me back up the brewers association has never defined craft beer that is left to the beer drinker what we have defined is what constitutes a craft brewer and why we have felt that is necessary is so that we can clearly understand who it is that myself and my team goes to work for each and every day. Who do we represent? And we represent, you know, what we have, where we have landed is we represent the small and independent brewers of the United States. And so small for us is 6 million barrels of annual production or less. And independent means... For us, you can't have more than 25% ownership of a company that itself is not a craft brewer. The most recent change to the definition eliminated the traditional component. For a number of years, the definition read small, independent, and traditional. And the reason that change was made was we noticed many of our brewers, certainly led you know, first and foremost by Boston Beer, who were starting to make products that fell well outside the traditional understanding of what beer is. And so we did a survey of our members and said, you know, tell us what you're making now and what are you considering making in the future? Most of our surveys get a few hundred responses. Even our federal excise tax survey where we asked people, how are you using the $80 million collectively that the new tax rates that we got on your behalf, how are you using that? That got 400, 500 responses. This survey, we got well over 900 responses. Mm. And what we heard was in this ever-increasing marketplace, this ever-increasingly competitive marketplace, we are going to make whatever we can to stay in business. And so we saw that people were going to make flavored sugar beverages. They were going to make hard kombucha. Uh, Very interested in where everything is going with hemp, with CBD, and potentially with products that may include THC if that were to become federally legal. So that is really what prompted the board to take a hard look at should we eliminate the traditional component from the definition. And that was the end decision. That was the most recent change. And for me, I think that was the right decision. I think it was pretty insightful. Uh, Every day I am hearing of a new brewery who is making something that we would not consider a traditional beer. I was at a brewery party celebration two weekends ago in Boulder, and they were proudly showing me their three new products of, uh, of their spike seltzers. 
And I mean, that that is where, you know, innovation has always been a hallmark of small and independent breweries. And for us, this is just another example of where these small businesses are innovating to stay competitive. That's a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> I was in all the discussions. Yes, and you know what I can tell your listeners and, you know, for anybody that's listening is the, the this decision is made by the Brewer, Brewers Association Board of Directors. There are 19 members of the board. They're small and independent business owners, and they take that decision really, really seriously. Of course. And hours and hours of debate. Yeah. I mean, it's their business. Yes. It, it, yeah. it really yeah. is yeah. fundamentally their business and the future of their business that they're making decisions about and they're, and they're discussing with us. So I think that's, that's an important point that I'll, I'll reiterate for our listeners because there was a lot of sort of and you've seen it all, Bob. I'm sure you know this debate about, oh my gosh, Spike. You know, like it, it, it wasn't. It wasn't all done for Sam Adams and Boston Beer, right. even though people <laughs> like to think that uh, Boston Beer was what got the conversation started. Sure, but at that time, that decision was made. Jim Cook was on the BA board of directors. He's not now, but I can tell you that Jim gets one vote. Right, he got one vote, and there's 19 people on that board, and the decision to change the definition was. Not a close vote. I'll add to that by simply saying craft beer is is not – there's not an iconic sort of this is craft beer. Uh, we're very, very fortunate that craft beer has become uh, – a, a blooming industry in this yeah. country. It's become a it's become a rapidly growing industry. It's allowed a lot of people to experience beer in ways that they couldn't have experienced 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. And we're very fortunate for that. Could but not agree it, more. It would be very short-sighted in my personal opinion, but I, it's my show, so I get to have a personal <laughs> opinion. Uh, and my, it, it would be very short-sighted of us to sort of say, okay, but now we're going to start putting boundaries and you know fences around what we define as craft beer because had somebody chosen to do that 15 years ago, the kind of beer we see today may not exist. If somebody had said beer has to be clear. Yeah. Yeah. You know, would New England IPAs have been able to become a thing? Hazy IPAs be a thing? Um, and that's a bad example. Probably, no, I think that. But, no, I think that's a good example. And where we have really focused our energies is on that word independence. We think that is the differentiator that exists today in the American beer landscape. Does the beer drinker want to support a small and independent company that? works in their community, hires their, hires their friends and families in that community, and most importantly, a company that when you, when you patronize them with your, with your hard-earned dollar, that money stays in your community. That mm -hmm. is the differentiator. And if you want to do that, there was a way to do that now through the Independent Craft Brewer Seal. If you don't want to do that, that's fine as well. If you just want to, hey, I'd like to buy this beer because I love the way it tastes or I'd like to buy this beer because it costs a little less, that's fine. But where we come down is independence is like the red line for us. Yeah, I like that. I mean, yeah. I, I appreciate that you – Define a craft brewer as opposed to craft beer, and there's and it's often misconstrued. Oh, yeah. You know, we have a little running joke, and you know, in our office, if somebody says the craft beer definition, no, you owe you owe us a case. You can't say <laughs> that because there is no such thing for us as the craft beer definition. Wow, it's craft, inflation it's, has hit it's you as well. Craft, it's, a case. it's craft brewer. It's a craft brewer. I I think yeah. that's fantastic, and I think it's something think it that we too. will uh, <laughs> we will continue. I mean, listen, DC beer. 
dis- our mission is to connect craft beer consumers and craft beer businesses yeah. because there's more in the business, of course, than just the brewers. We work with retailers. We work with uh, brew pubs. We work with restaurants uh, that celebrate craft brewing yeah. and craft beer. We work with tour companies, all the different experiences. Love hearing all that. Craft, you know, beer tourism is a real thing that's mm-hmm. been put on the map in this country by small and independent brewers. And you've one of the uh, industries you didn't mention was the agricultural. Absolutely, our, our partners yes. in the agricultural community sure. uh, where we have really helped uh, revitalize hop growers and barley growers in this country uh, through the demand for uh, for specialty hops and barley for small and independent brewers. Uh, that's absolutely true. And one of the things I'll just add is uh, since we talked about Maryland having such draconian uh, franchise laws, which is absolutely true and it it's is. very, very frustrating – but Maryland also has a really robust farm brewery program sure that, is, that is actually doing a lot for bringing back um, that type of agricultural environment uh, that really can make some um, – that can result in some amazing craft beer um, by growing locally. Uh, and then there are a few breweries including Flying Dog who I believe is not a member of the Brewers Association any longer. They are not. We won't get into the whole thing with that right now, but they are working with the University of Maryland to develop strains of hops that will grow in the mid-Atlantic, and that's an admirable uh, uh, Absol- goal. Absolutely, uh, and we are you know, totally respectful of their efforts in that area, yeah. and uh, that's uh, something you see across the country where uh, – you know, where it used to be hops or barley growing, used to be confined to specific geographic regions in this country, and now that is uh, reemerging all around this country. New York used to be one of the bigger hop growing producing regions in this in this country back in the uh, late 1800s, and you know then it quickly consolidated to just the Willamette and the Yakima Valleys in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. Well, now that is changing, and that is due to the emergence of small and independent brewers. And so, how do you quantify that? I mean, it's right. really really hard. Yeah. But those are some of the arguments we use and justification of for the Craft Beverage Modernization and Tax Reform Act is our impact on communities around the country is immeasurable in so many ways. And that's why we think the Craft Beverage Bill is good public policy. Well, I think we could probably continue this conversation for hours more. <laughs> but uh, for, the, for the sake of everyone's time, including our listeners, Bob, thank you so much for coming in and taking the time oh, my to pleasure. talk to the D.C. Yeah, Beer Show. Much. We really appreciate yeah. this. And uh, we hope you have a great week here in D.C. during your visit. Thank you. And uh, we hope things go well on the Hill. And, yeah, uh, very, very much so. Uh, we look forward to seeing you again soon, uh, either this weekend at Saver, uh, which is Friday night, although it will be after the show comes out, and then uh, in Colorado in the fall at the Great American Beer Festival. Great. Well, I really enjoyed speaking with you and your listeners. I'm back in D.C. pretty much once every six weeks, so happy to pop back in again. Great. Great. Hey, folks. Thanks so much for listening to the D.C. Beer Show. We want to thank Bob Pease of the Brewers Association, Abby at the Brewers Association, everybody at the Brewers Association who helped put on such a great saver. And remember, every Wednesday at noon, you can get another episode of the DC Beer Show. Give us a rating. Give us a review, even better, uh, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much. You'll hear from us again next week. And remember, always drink great beer. 